Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. I'm so glad that you could join us today because we're going to be talking about a very important topic. We've learned in recent weeks that tens of millions of Americans are exposed to PFAS chemicals in their drinking water, not to mention the fact that we're all exposed through a variety of consumer products that are bringing these chemicals into our bodies. And today we're going to be talking about the human health impacts. And not only that, we're going to be talking about some guidance that has recently been published for both doctors and patients when it comes to PFAS exposure and some of the things that we can be doing to protect our health, to test for things that uh, may become present in our bodies. And our guest today is one of the best experts we could possibly have on the show to, to walk us through this. Uh, this is Dr. Scott Bartell. He's a professor of environmental and occupational health at UC Irvine. And for the past 25 years, Dr. Bartell has dedicated his research to quantifying human exposures and health effects caused by environmental contaminants, specifically and including PFAS, uh, particularly when it's in the presence of drinking water. And Dr. Bartell, Welcome to Go Green Radio. We're so glad to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Well, it's, it's really an honor to have you on. I'd like to start by having you tell us what PFAS chemicals are and how they end up in our bodies. Sure. Well, PFAS is an acronym. Uh, stands for per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. That's quite a mouthful, so those of us who study these chemicals almost always just refer them uh, to them as PFAS for short. Um, these are really used, as you mentioned, in a, in a wide variety of consumer products, from water-resistant clothing to food packaging and wrappers uh, to certain firefighting foams to cosmetics uh, and dental floss. Uh, so they're really widespread in a, in a wide variety of products in commercial use right now. Uh, the thing that links these, it's actually a complex uh, class of chemicals that includes thousands of different specific chemicals. But what they have in common is that they all have these carbon-fluorine bonds that are really, it's a, a very strong chemical bond that make these chemicals very persistent in the environment and in our bodies. They're very hard to break down. And so uh, they've sometimes been called forever chemicals because they last so long in the environment and remain in the body for so long. They're uh, solely man-made chemicals. Uh, they don't exist in nature, but they've been mass-produced uh, starting in the 1950s. So they're really widespread now, not just in our consumer products, but in the environment. Uh, they can be measured in uh, water. In fact, nearly half of the water systems in the U.S. Uh, are thought to have PFAS chemicals, and, and we've just learned more about that this week in some reports coming out from a new round of sampling data that the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has mandated. The reason we're starting to really be concerned about this, though, and, and uh, be studying these chemicals uh, for the last few decades pretty intensely, is that we've learned that uh, they really do exhibit toxicity, both in animal studies and increasingly as we're doing human studies, uh, we're finding out where we're seeing evidence that they cause health effects in us, too. Um, there are two PFAS chemicals, uh, PFOA and PFOS, which are probably the most well-studied among these thousands of chemicals. 
Um, because uh, people started to be concerned about their toxicity, the major manufacturers of these chemicals agreed to phase them out of production uh, for the most part by uh, 2010 in the U.S. Uh, and about similar time frame in Europe. Uh, but they're still produced in other parts of the world, and they're still virtually uh, everybody. Uh, everybody's have them in their blood. We've detected them every time we've looked in nearly 100 percent of, of samples. Wow. Um, and that's, again, partly because they persist for so long in the environment. So even though they're, they're no longer being produced in the U.S., they still may be in some imported consumer products. And it takes a long time to clear them out of our bodies. Mm -hmm. The prevalence is pretty much 100%. So talk to us about what is currently known about the human health impacts of PFAS exposure. Well, you know, we're still learning a lot about this. And uh, I think, though, there is a growing consensus among scientists that PFAS exposure uh, can cause increases in cholesterol, uh, can cause kidney cancer, and decreased immune response. Uh, we've seen across a variety of studies now in different populations and with different vaccines that, that actually people with higher PFAS concentrations in their blood seem to have a lower uh, uh, antibody response uh, to, uh, to different vaccine uh, antigens. And so basically, it's, it's worried that this is going to hamper the effectiveness of vaccines. Uh, there's a longer list of health conditions for which evidence is emerging that PFAS probably also contributes to those conditions. And this includes things like ulcerative colitis, which is an inflammatory bowel disease, uh, decreased birth weight and pregnancy-induced hypertension, uh, other cancers, including breast cancer, testicular cancer, uh, thyroid disease, uh, and liver dysfunction. And so there's a long list of health conditions uh, where we're increasingly seeing that people have higher concentrations of, of PFAS in their blood or, or history of PFAS exposure uh, are more likely to have these adverse health effects. I know that we've had a couple of big studies in the past that, that really dug in deep to these issues. What did we learn from the C8 studies in West Virginia and Ohio? Yeah, so these were really important studies. Uh, I was actually involved uh, heavily in those studies, uh, as were a large number of other scientists uh, around the around the country and even from from Europe. And uh, these were really important because it was the first large scale effort to actually study. Uh, the health effects of these chemicals in a large number of people. Um, this actually was centered on a community uh, that uh, that was surrounding the DuPont Washington Works plant near Parkersburg, West Virginia, uh, which is a situation in which local water supplies were contaminated by PFOA, one of these PFAS chemicals that had been emitted from that plant uh, for many decades. Um, Blood samples, residential histories, and health data were collected uh, for over 69,000 residents of that community under a lawsuit settlement. And this is actually uh, popularized in the, in the movie Dark Waters, uh, which came out some years ago and uh, kind of tells the story of how this study happened and, and how people found out about the water contamination and then what we learned about it. Um, but these are really important studies because uh, really it was a, a large set of health studies that emerged over about 10 years almost that we, we worked on this uh, and collecting data, analyzing data from this population. And it was important because it was almost a natural experiment. We had uh, six different water systems, different public water systems surrounding the plant, but, you know, different directions from the plant, 
uh, some downwind, some not so much downwind, and that created strong differences in the amount of PFOA in the water at each of these water systems, uh, which allowed us to sort of compare health effects uh, by across people living in those different water systems uh, to really get a good sense of whether um, just happen, happening to be downwind of, uh, of that plant and having those higher concentrations uh, led to more adverse health effects. Um, when uh, the leaders of, of these studies uh, really um, evaluated the data from those studies, along with uh, what else had been published in the literature and scientific literature at that time regarding the health effects, they concluded that there was really sufficient evidence to say that PFOA exposure was probably linked to six conditions, including some of the ones I mentioned previously, uh, the, like several cancers, ulcerative colitis, pregnancy-induced hypertension, um, thyroid diseases. Um, and so uh, this was really, I think, the first time a um, authoritative body of scientists had really looked uh, as a whole at the evidence and said, yeah, we, we think these actually are a problem and they're causing these health effects. Mm -hmm. You know, I live in an area where we have significant um, levels of contamination, PFAS contamination in our groundwater supply. And I'm so interested in medical monitoring. Nothing like that is happening in my area. And I'd love for you to tell us about the medical monitoring program that was implemented in those two areas and maybe speak to, you know, other medical monitoring programs or emerging opportunities for medical monitoring. Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's really, you know, a, a question all physicians and community members in communities who have had these elevated exposures from water contamination in particular should be thinking about. Um, so in the West Virginia, Ohio area around that, that plant where uh, the exposures were very high, they had, you know, in some of those water systems, uh, they had extremely high levels of PFOA in the water. Um, the medical panel actually was put together, including one of my colleagues, Dean Baker from UC Irvine, uh, who's an occupational physician, who uh, environmental uh, researcher who's been doing this kind of work for a long time. Um, and that panel recommended medical monitoring for everyone in those six water systems uh, because they all had a, at least some uh, substantial amount of, of contamination in their water. They developed a protocol which uh, was initiated in 2014. Uh, they've kind of continued to offer that medical monitoring. They updated in 2021, actually just a few years ago. But that protocol is basically recommending um, PFOA blood testing and general screening for uh, health issues every three years. But then they also recommended uh, targeted screening tests for the conditions that had really been uh, denoted by the, uh, by the leaders of the C8 studies, which we call the C8 science panel, three uh, senior epidemiologists who really made those conclusions about the linkages to different health conditions. And so for those, which include elevated cholesterol, thyroid disease, ulcerative colitis, testicular cancer, uh, pregnancy-induced hypertension. Uh, they really recommended uh, a variety of additional tests from just screening by symptom questionnaires focused on those conditions since we know that they were linked to PFOA exposure, uh, and in some case, additional blood tests or age-specific examinations uh, that, uh, that were targeted towards those conditions. Um, all of that is available publicly. You can read more about that uh, screening program it's called the C8 Medical Monitoring Program uh, for anyone who's interested in learning more. 
And this was really, I think, the first, to my knowledge, the first example of medical monitoring uh, for, for PFAS exposure uh, in terms of an official recommendation. But this has actually been, in recent years, uh, a, a really active area of concern for the Centers for Disease Control as they uh, try to struggle with what, what to tell physicians and people in communities who have water contamination, uh, what kind of additional medical testing, if any, they should be doing. And so they and other uh, federal agencies went to the National Academies a few years back and asked them for advice on this question. Uh, the National Academies, for those who don't know, is, a, is actually a nonprofit that was established uh, by, uh, by Congress, by the U.S. Congress, to provide advice to Congress and to other federal agencies uh, about important, uh, important scientific issues, and particularly issues like PFAS, where a lot of our studies have really come in recent years, and our government agencies are still trying to figure out what to, what to make of these and what to do about them. Sure. So the National Academies, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, you know what? I, I want to definitely pick up on this when we come back from a quick commercial break. We're going to take a quick break, folks, but don't go away. We have so much more on the human health impacts of PFAS with Dr. Scott Bartell. So don't go away. We'll be back right after this. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could tune in. And if you're just joining us, let me catch you up. Today, we're talking about the human health impacts of PFAS exposure. And we're going to be talking about some guidance for doctors and patients. Our guest today is Dr. Scott Bartell 
professor of environmental and occupational health at UC Irvine. Right before the break, Scott, you were talking about the National Academies of Science, um, their role and as an advisor to Congress and others. I want you to pick up where you left off. Please go right ahead. Yeah, thank you. Um, the National Academies uh, was asked, basically, by the Centers for Disease Control to uh, help them really think about what kind of recommendations to give to community members and to physicians in communities uh, affected by PFAS exposure. Um, and this, what the Academies did, does is they, they pull together panels of experts from across the country and, in fact, even uh, one or two from Canada, North America, uh, really from Yale, uh, Harvard, uh, Johns Hopkins, uh, including UC Irvine. We had one one of my colleagues on this panel uh, for medical monitoring for PFAS, in fact. And about a year ago in 2022, they released their report, uh, which really uh, was a very thoughtful and detailed uh, set of recommendations uh, for people who again, are in these communities affected by a particularly local source of PFAS. Again, we all have it in our blood, but people in uh, communities with local contamination have some extra things they can do to, uh, to kind of be responsible and proactive about, uh, about the health effects that might be resulting from exposure to these chemicals. Absolutely. Um, so for example, yeah, let's talk about the recommendations for government agencies. I know that they had some recommendations for the Agency of Toxic Substances and Disease Registry and other government entities in communities where PFAS exposure has been identified, like, for instance, living in a community with PFAS contaminated drinking water. What were those recommendations for the government agencies in those areas? Yeah, so I think the first most important recommendation that came out of that report is that they really felt as important that the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, which is also uh, known by the acronym ATSDR, which is part of the Centers for Disease Control, that that, uh, that agency and other governmental entities should really be uh, producing educational materials aimed at local uh, physicians in particular about PFAS exposure and testing. This is kind of an emerging area. Not many physicians were, are, I would say, very few to none were really trained in, uh, in PFAS exposure and health issues. And so this will be a new area uh, for most physicians who are practicing. So the number one recommendation for the committee was that ATSDR really needs to develop uh, educational materials to support, uh, support these physicians in understanding you know, what the health risks are and what they could be telling uh, community members uh, to do to both reduce their exposure to PFAS, but also uh, to have, you know, informed conversations with their patients about what, if addition, what additional medical monitoring, if any, they might want to be doing. Mm -hmm. And let's dig into that because there were several recommendations specifically for clinicians and particularly clinicians in communities where there's known PFAS exposure. Um, let's, let's really unpack that. Take your time and talk to us about the recommendations for doctors. Yeah, so the first recommendation is really that uh, doctors should start by determining whether their patients are likely to have a history of elevated exposure to PFAS. Um, history of elevated exposure can occur in a variety of ways. Uh, one of these would be working with, uh, with PFAS, which are also known as fluorochemicals. Um, firefighters, for example, are one occupation uh, that tend to have a, a higher level of exposure to these chemicals. Uh, partly, again, because they're, they're used in certain uh, firefighting foams, AFFF, aqueous, 
film forming films. Um, other groups that have had a history of elevated exposure include people who've lived in a community with PFAS contaminated drinking water if they're if they're actually consuming the, the tap water. And again, as we're learning, many communities around the country have this issue. Um, people who live near industries that use PFAS uh, also can have a history of elevated exposure. Uh, often these industries uh, had uh, historically minimal regulations on these chemicals and their emissions, and so sometimes they were coming out of their, their stacks into the air or into the water in pretty large amounts. And so uh, Parkersburg, West Virginia was one example of that, but there are other communities around the country with, uh, with major production sites or industries uh, using about large amounts of PFAS, and that can lead to local exposures. Mm -hmm. uh, military members are often also exposed, partly, we think, because uh, those AFFF uh, firefighting foams have been used on a lot of military bases, uh, often pretty routinely in drills. And even for people not uh, using the foams directly as part of their work with the military, uh, those foams often end up, uh, you know, running off onto the ground and uh, slowly dripping down into the groundwater, which is often used then for, for drinking water, for tap water in the communities living around those military bases. And so on average, people who have served in the military do have higher levels of these chemicals, and so that is a, another indicator of a, a likely history of elevated exposure. Mm -hmm. Another factor that can lead to elevated exposure is consuming uh, fish and game from areas with known contamination. And so people can be on the lookout for warnings from their local health department, uh, which they'll often put up if they know that there's uh, PFAS contamination in the, in the deer or in fish or other uh, game that might be hunted. Mm -hmm. And so if a doctor identifies patients that fit these categories, what should they do? So the next step is really to have a conversation with the patient about whether to test the patient's blood for PFAS. Uh, there's some pros and cons of doing that, uh, but on the whole, the recommendation is that, you know, if people really have a known exposure, you can learn more about, you know, the potential health risks and the, the degree of health risk by doing a blood test. Um, you know, the risks are pretty minor, uh, so nobody really likes getting a blood sample taken, but it's a, mm -hmm. a brief prick, and mm -hmm. then it's done, and you can learn a lot uh, about your history of exposure is reflected by, you know, how much of those chemicals are still in your body. And then the results of that blood test uh, now uh, with the National Academy's guidance, uh, they have laid out some specific categories of additional medical follow-up testing uh, that would be appropriate based on uh, if you have elevated levels of PFAS in your blood with different sort of recommendations depending on the range of concentrations. And talk to us about that. What are some of the, the follow-up tests at various, uh, you know, serum levels that should be conducted? Give us an idea of some of the examples. Yeah, so the National Academy has actually uh, created two main categories uh, for elevated PFAS. One is a range of 2 to 20 nanograms per milliliter of PFAS in the blood. And this is actually determined by adding uh, seven of the most common PFAS chemicals. So taking the concentrations of each of those seven and summing them. And for people in that range, uh, which actually many of us uh, in the U.S. are in that range, uh, this is actually, I think, where majority of the U.S. population probably sits right now. Uh, the economy's recommended uh, not necessarily doing anything outside of the usual standard of care, which means that 
you know, should all be going periodically at regular intervals for regular checkups with our doctor. But, uh, but within that standard of care, the National Academies really urged patients and doctors to prioritize several, uh, several tests based on, again, the, the evidence we have that the PFAS can cause these health effects in humans. Mm-hmm. One of these is that everybody in that range, that middle range of 2 to 20 nanogram per milliliter of PFAS should be getting uh, a cholesterol uh, test, a lipid panel, really. Uh, at regular intervals that are recommended, which is once every four to six years if you're over age 20 and uh, once between uh, age 9 and 11. And these follow the standard clinical recommendations by uh, medical authorities and medical uh, groups, uh, but but it's really uh, interesting. The report kind of just emphasized, look, you don't want to skip this. Uh, many of us don't necessarily follow every recommendation to go in mm-hmm. as frequently as we should to the doctor. Uh, but one of the key recommendations of this report was really, really do this. It's important because we know that PFAS can cause these conditions that you get these tests on the, on the regular recommended schedule if you're in that middle range. Mm-hmm. Another uh, recommendation for people in that group was to screen uh, for people who are pregnant, screen for, uh, for pregnancy-induced hypertension and hypertensive disorders of pregnancy at every prenatal visit. Again, this is part of the standard clinical recommendation that doctors should be doing with all their pregnant patients, uh, but it's really a, a, a strong recommendation from the National Academies not to skip that step. And again, if you're a patient... Uh, even if you feel healthy, important to come in for those prenatal visits for a wide variety of reasons, but including uh, for the PFAS if you're in that range to especially make sure you get that uh, that that uh, the pregnancy-induced hypertension uh, possibility checked. Mm-hmm. Another recommendation for people in that middle group was to screen for breast cancer uh, based on the usual clinical practice guidelines uh, from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. So again, you know, come in regularly for that breast cancer screening. Nobody likes to go to the doctor, uh, but it's really important and especially important if you've had this PFAS exposure uh, to be on the lookout for these conditions. You know, I, I am only going off of a gut reaction, a kind of a gut feeling that, you know, a lot of clinicians do not know about this guidance at the moment. Um, what is being done to carry this message to clinicians, especially in communities most impacted by PFAS? Well, you know, I think we could be doing a lot more, frankly, and that's one of the reasons I'm really excited to be on this show, to kind of spread the word that these are recommendations that are coming out. Uh, there's, um, you know, now this, there's the um, the West Virginia, Ohio medical monitoring program. There's additional medical monitoring advice that's come out of uh, PFAS Reach, which is a, a group of multiple universities involved with uh, trying to do community outreach, uh, both to community members and physicians about testing. And so I think these are all resources that physicians can use, and we just uh, need to do as good a job as we can about getting the word out. I am actually doing talks locally in Southern California, where I live. I've uh, done a Grand Rounds talk for our uh, our School of Medicine at UC Irvine. I'm going to Scripps uh, in a month or two to, to do one there as well. I'm really happy to come you know, speak to physicians at any opportunity about this. Um, and if I can return, actually, to the previous question about the medical monitoring guidance, I should actually mention there's a whole other set of guidance for people who really have uh, even more elevated PFAS levels above 20 nanograms per milliliter. 
And that guidance is really important for physicians to know because it actually goes beyond the regular screening frequency and says, look, if you've got a really high exposure to PFAS, um, you should actually be screening for thyroid disease, kidney cancer, ulcerative colitis, testicular cancer, and lipid panels, really according to a more aggressive uh, testing schedule that would be more appropriate for high-risk patients, like people who have a, a family history of those conditions. Gotcha. So it's really important to, for physicians to sort of understand this, this guidance that's out there and be aware that these conditions you know, have been associated with PFAS. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Bartell. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. A little birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us today. And in case you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. We're talking about the human health impacts of PFAS exposure and specifically guidance for doctors and patients. And our guest today is Dr. Scott Bartell of UC Irvine. He spent 25 years studying this. And so he's, we are in good hands, <laughs> maybe the best hands for this topic. I want to shift now to testing uh, because you know, in order for doctors and patients to know uh, what kind of extra medical, you know, uh, care or testing should be done based on our exposure, we've got to know <laughs> what our what our serum levels are. So, uh, Dr. Bartell, talk to us about some of the potential benefits of conducting PFAS testing for patients. Sure. Yeah, I think the most important benefit is the one you alluded to, Jill, which is just that we can, you know, actually better tailor uh, medical screening to patients uh, if we know, uh, you know, whether they're at very high risk or just moderate risk of some of these health conditions. 
or a just normal risk. And so having that PFAS level in blood, although it doesn't tell you for sure whether you're going to get any of those health conditions, can really help uh, physicians better understand if they ought to be uh, assessing you for signs of those conditions and, and doing tests more frequently. And I think that's the number one reason to, to consider getting getting tested for PFAS if, you, if you've had a history of exposure to it. I think for some people, too, just knowing their level can, can also uh, help set their mind at ease. If you're the kind of person who's going to worry a lot about that past exposure, by getting tested, you can actually determine you know, to what extent your, your blood levels are or n- are not higher than what's typical uh, for, for the U.S. population. Um, ideally, none of us would have any of these chemicals in our body, but again, knowing sort of where you sit relative to what's normal uh, for for today, uh, the today's day and age might help put some people's mind at ease as well. Mm-hmm. You know, we've mentioned this briefly, but PFAS chemicals are bioaccumulative. And why is it important for people to understand that? And what should we know about the fact that PFAS chemicals are bioaccumulative um, chemicals? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it has several answers. Uh, one is that uh, it's important to understand that even though we're doing a lot to try to tackle the PFAS problem, California, for example, just passed a law in the last year that uh, manufacturers who use these chemicals, PFAS chemicals in textiles, are going to have to actually divulge that. And product labeling is actually a really good way to discourage manufacturers from using toxic chemicals because uh, they have to, if they have to actually explain that and uh, show what they're using, it kind of discourages them from from doing that unless it's really, unless they really feel it's necessary, and then they have to argue with the state about it. <laughs> so I think that's that's a really important factor. And I, I'm afraid I lost my train of thought. Can you circle me back to the original question? Oh, absolutely. Why is it important for us to know, uh, you know, and understand the ramifications of the fact that PFAS chemicals are bioaccumulative toxins? Oh, yes, right. And so, you know, even though we're doing uh, a lot to try to uh, phase out these chemicals production, uh, to also uh, to uh, do water treatment, for example, in a lot of communities that have had uh, detections of PFAS in the water, particularly in California, have been pretty proactive in trying to actually uh, build improved water treatment to remove those chemicals. But even though we're doing this, it doesn't mean that the problem's going to go away tomorrow, even if we if we have those water treatment systems improved tomorrow. Uh, the fact that they're bioaccumulative means that we're going to actually be stuck with these chemicals in our bodies for years or decades after we remove them from our water or from products. And so that's really important to understand that, you know, our exposure and our health risks are going to continue even as we phase these chemicals out just because they remain in the body for so long. Yeah, and and we're talking about a half-life of years, right? That's right. Yeah, it's in the years, uh, particularly for uh, most of those seven uh, legacy PFAS chemicals I mentioned that we add up to to consider, you know, what medical monitoring category people go into. Um, these are all uh, chemicals with long half-lives, which is the time it takes to excrete about half of the amount of the chemical. And really a rule of thumb is it takes four or five half-lives to clear most of that uh, chemical from your body. So we're looking at like a decade or more for most of these chemicals to really uh, remove you know, what's in our bodies today, even if we stopped exposure completely. 
uh, which we can't do because they're still in our products, they're in carpeting, they're in our homes in many cases. And so we'll be continued to be exposed to these for, for a while, even after we, after we take them out of new products and, and the water. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about the complex relationship between water and blood or serum levels for PFAS concentrations. Yeah, this is important because um, many cases we we know that the um, the water concentrations may seem very low, like parts per trillion, uh, which doesn't sound like a lot. It's a it's a small concentration, also in nanograms per liter. But we uh, we know that because of that bioaccumulation, the amount that actually uh, builds up in the body can be. Uh, like a thousand times higher than that concentration in the in the in the water, and so that um, that takes a little while. It doesn't happen immediately the first time you have a glass of water, but as you continue to drink contaminated water over a long period of time, or to eat you know uh, product food that has PFAS in it, uh, those PFAS levels build up in your body uh, to to higher levels. And so again, that's kind of a complex relationship, but it's it's one of the reasons why we're so concerned about uh, removing these chemicals from food, from water, as soon as we can, because they do do build up, and they have built up over the over the decades that we've all been exposed to them. Mm-hmm. I'd love for you to tell us about the UC Irvine PFAS health study that you are conducting down in Orange County. Tell us more. Yeah, so we started this study actually around uh, 2020, unfortunately, right around the time the pandemic started. And so we were a little slow (laughs) to get off the ground because, of course, we were focused on some other things during 2020. Mm -hmm. Uh, But really, in about 2021, we started uh, recruiting participants for our study at UC Irvine, which is part of a national study, a, a larger effort funded by uh, by the ATSDR, that same agency we talked about earlier, is part of the CDC. Um, and this study is actually designed to study PFAS exposures and health effects in uh, communities around the country that have uh, PFAS in the water supply. And we unfortunately have had that here in Orange County as well, where I live, uh, not, not far from our campus at UC Irvine. And so we are actually uh, collecting blood samples and urine samples from Uh, Our goal is to hit 1,300 uh, residents of Orange County. We're going to be continuing to uh, recruit participants for the next month here um, so people can still sign up for that study. And it's uh, it's actually pretty simple uh, for people to participate. We do about a 45-minute questionnaire, which we can do over the phone or in person. And then uh, we ask them to to fast uh, overnight so they're not eating food uh, before they come into their blood uh, to give their blood sample. And then that blood sample we actually measured for not just PFAS, but for also a number of clinical uh, disease markers from liver function to kidney function, to thyroid function, uh, to some of those antibodies uh, for immune function that I mentioned earlier. And we're going to you know, help contribute to the scientific understanding of the relationship between exposure to PFAS and these different health outcomes. When do you expect to have results that, that we can we can all look at. (laughs) 
Uh, that's a great question. Uh, we are actually providing individual results uh, from the mm -hmm. clinical testing within a pretty short time frame to people. Uh, within uh, usually a few weeks to a month, we're able to get back uh, clinical testing results to those individuals. But I think your question was probably about you know when we'll know the overall results of the mm -hmm. of the study, kind of looking at you know in the in our community and in these other communities whether you know PFAS is associated with these different health effects. Um, I think we're hoping to get some of those initial results in, I'd say, about a time frame of one to two years. Mm -hmm. um, I know that sounds like a long time, but it, it does take a while. We're still sure. actually waiting for some of those measures, including the PFAS uh, blood measures to come back. Uh, those are being done at the CDC, actually, by their laboratories, which have uh, probably the most expertise in the world in, in testing uh, these these chemicals. And so, those uh, those results probably won't be back till late this year, early next year, and then it'll take us a little while to do the to do the scientific analyses linking uh, or studying the potential links between uh, PFAS, not just in the blood and urine, but also uh, in the water uh, supplies. Mm -hmm. You know, which we have a whole engineering team at UC Irvine that's been working to try to understand the history of how PFAS got into our water and what we think the levels of PFAS were over time in our communities. And both of those types of information will be used to, to study the exposure uh, health effect relationships. Wow, that's that's really exciting. I, I can't wait <laughs> for, for that paper to come out. Talk to us about some of the other studies uh, that are being done by CDC and ATSDR. Uh, what else is going on around the country? Well, they're doing a lot in this area. Um, their main mission, actually, at ICSDR is to really conduct exposure assessments. And so they actually are doing studies uh, all around the country of communities with elevated uh, PFAS uh, contamination, either in the water or in other, uh, other uh, uh, parts of the environment in these communities. And so they actually have, I think, several dozen sites around the country where they're doing these uh, community assessments. And basically estimating the amount of exposure to these chemicals that occurs to people in those communities, and then using uh, information that's already published on health effects to try to try to make recommendations to those communities about uh, what, if anything, they, they should be worried about in response to their, to their exposure levels. Mm -hmm. um, they do actually a little bit of health effects research as well, and, and that's one, uh, one of the reasons they're leading this, uh, this study that we're involved with in the UCA. UCI PFAS health study uh, that's really, uh, really centered at CDC uh, ATSDR. They wrote the protocol for this study, and we partnered with them to implement it and then to do the scientific uh, assessments at the end. Mm -hmm. These these studies are expensive, you know, and I have been watching uh, various lawsuits around the country uh, that have helped or will help bring funding to water agencies to do cleanup. And that's fantastic. I mean, that's absolutely necessary. We've got to clean the water supply. And I'm hoping that more and more funding will be available for medical monitoring, because in the end, uh, it's the individual human beings impacted by this exposure that are going to need help. Uh, their, their physicians will need guidance. And so I'm hoping to see more and more of these types of studies being done. Of course, we know that you know, this is rampant. 
um, and, and as you mentioned earlier in the show, about half of our nation's water supplies are contaminated with PFAS. So, uh, you know, this is, this is a big lift, but I'm hoping that we'll be able to do more and more of these studies. We've got to take a, a short commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to be joined by Andrew Patterson of a company called Eurofins. They do PFAS testing. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. World. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We're talking about the human health impacts of PFAS exposure. And up until this point, we've been referencing the importance of doing testing on people who are in communities with elevated exposure risks. And now we're going to be joined by Andrew Patterson, who's the technical director at Eurofins Environment Testing America, who brings 20 years of experiment of experience in environmental laboratory testing and the environmental laboratory industry. Andrew, tell our listeners about Eurofin's PFAS testing options and how our listeners can engage with your company. Well, uh, you know, first of all, I've been I've been listening to this program, and you know, big, you know, thank you for for including me on this one. I've you know I've learned a lot myself. Um, so you know, big shout out to Professor Bartel and yourself, um, Jill. Really, uh, Eurofin's is you know the largest network of testing laboratories in the world, and within um, our network here in North America, we do have, you know, multiple clinical, um, agricultural. Um, I'm part of the environmental testing division. So some people might be thinking, well, why why are you testing human blood? Um, and really that's because of the nature of PFAS. Um, our environmental division tests PFAS in a wide variety of matrices. You could think anything from water, of course, soil, sediment, air, tissue, product testing. We test a lot of products from major vendors. Um, you know, both in the research 
research communities, uh, private industry, tests for the government, anything you can think of, we test for PFAS. And so really human blood or biomonitoring uh, for PFAS here um, is, is under our wheelhouse, is under our umbrella. Um, and I helped bring PFAS and blood testing to Eurofins North America. And really that started out with serum. Um, I think we've been talking about you know, comparing levels. Uh, Dr. Bartel was talking about comparing levels anywhere from 2 to 20 nanograms or 20 nanograms per mil and above. Um, and, and really that's all been done with serum. So, of, of course, we do support a traditional serum test. Usually these aren't done by, by individuals, but they, they can be, and we do accept individual serum tests. But um, at last count, we're working with uh, 15 different universities, either in the process of setting up a PFAS uh, testing program with that university or already completed hundreds or thousands of serum samples. So, so really, you know, our, our PFAS testing efforts um, have a couple different prongs. And the first one is, is research, like I mentioned, um, but we're also doing litigation support and then also individual testing. And it's that, that individual testing um, that was the genesis um, for the, the PFAS finger prick blood test, the PFAS exposure remote blood test. Mm-hmm. And this differs because it's not a, um, a blood uh, a draw, a venous blood draw, but rather um, uh, just a small lancet and a finger prick, and then we use a volumetric absorptive device to collect a prescribed amount of blood that's then um, put into an envelope and um, uh, in a FedEx envelope and, and dropped at a FedEx drop station, and it shows up in our Sacramento laboratory where we get you results um, in, a, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, and I so did that. This, <laughs> yeah, it was it was easy. And and for listeners who may say, you know what, I'm not waiting for my doctor to order this test. I want to do it. How do they get to your company? How do they engage with Eurofin so that they can do this on their own? Um, you can just do the simple Eurofin's PFAS blood test, and I know our result comes comes right right up near the top of that search. Um, we really do have you know a, a couple options for the finger prick test. Um, for for individuals, um, that the easiest route is to go to um, Empower DX um, and search for the PFAS blood test. That's actually our our same blood test that we perform in Sacramento, um, but run by our sister entity because they have a great um, selection of at home tests. So that's mm-hmm. you know the Empower DX test is the Eurofins test. If mm-hmm. you're doing you know if you're a fire station or you're doing larger groups or you're thinking about doing you know a whole town or or something like that. We we deal with that directly from from our Sacramento laboratory, where where the test was developed and where all the um, where all the blood tests and biomonitoring occurs. Um, so, so, what's so your process then for ensuring data integrity when the test kits are self-administered by patients? Because you know, I know that people are going to want to make sure that if they get those test results, they can say with absolute certainty, you know, these are accurate. So, what's your process? Um, that's a, that's a great question, Jill. And and really, you know, the, the heart of it is that th- this is a this is a research grade tool. Um, this is a research grade tool that people have have access to, and I, I think that's that's a first. And as far as as far as data quality, um, we've got a long list of certifications. Everything do, we do is is certified under ISO seventeen zero two five. We have our our primary NELAP certification, which is our our whole. Quality assurance, quality control falls under under that umbrella, and we actually don't we don't know your name, 
when these tests show up at our laboratory. It's all just a, a, a coded system. Um, so any result that, that comes out of any of the Eurofins laboratories is, is defensible. Um, you know, we don't do anything semi-quantitatively, meaning you know, we don't estimate any concentrations. Um, we're using the same stringent quality controls that we use um, on big remediation projects, that we use on federal work, that we use you know, worldwide. Um, so, so really, you know, the, the, these, these numbers we, we stand behind um, 100%. And we also, you know, employ the gold standard for, for quantitation for, for deriving these, these concentrations, which is known as isotope dilution. And, you know, without going into too many details, it's, it's a really expensive but accurate and precise approach um, where we're, we're actually adding um, isotopically labeled analogs of PFAS themselves into your blood test. And so no matter what happens with that test, whether it's some enhancement or suppression, um, our, our isotope dilution quantitation scheme um, can derive that, that, uh, that correct answer, that correct concentration, rather, um, for any, any sample that we encounter. Gotcha. Now, when, you know, if our listeners reach out to you and they do this test, what can they expect to receive from Eurofins once their test is analyzed? What do they get back? And, you know, uh, is it in a format that is actionable? Talk to us about that. You, you bet. So, if it, you know, if it's a serum test, um, you know, we're delivering results in, in nanograms per mil. Um, just like you would read if you were comparing those data uh, to a, a CDC uh, and Haynes table. So you can look, look, and look at your results and you can look to see where you fit in uh, with the CDC and Haynes table. Um, if it's the whole blood approach, we're actually reporting two different series of values. The first is as measured in, in your whole blood. And since there's a difference between whole blood and serum, uh, we're using coefficients established um, out of Norway to convert those whole blood values into serum equivalents. And it's those serum equivalents that you can then compare to the CDC study. We're actually also, um, the Silent Spring Institute has a great tool uh, that we're directing people towards where you can, if you have water data, you can enter your water data and you can mm -hmm. also enter those seven PFAS that Dr. Barchel talked about um, where it'll actually sum those for you and plot it out, uh, plot out where your results are compared to the national averages. That is awesome. Thank you so much, Andrew. Dr. Bartel, I want to bring you back on. We've got just a couple minutes, maybe less. In that amount of time, what parting thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners? I have so many thoughts on PFAS, but uh, <laughs> if I can try to condense them. I just, you know, I think, uh, I know this is a lot of information to take in, particularly for people who may be hearing about PFAS for the first time or, or don't know too much about it. And I just want to say, you know, you, you don't have to be alarmed about this. Uh, I think everybody should be concerned about it, and we should be looking for ways to reduce our exposure. And again, if you're in a community where you know you've had PFAS in your water, you know, have that conversation with your physician about, about testing uh, for, for PFAS in your blood. Or, you know, look at some of the materials we've talked about today and think through it. But I think, you know, there are, there's a lot we can do. And I, I think a lot back to lead, you know, which in first in the 1970s, we started to get very concerned about when the Surgeon General uh, actually report uh, in the early 70s really started uh, mm -hmm. the idea of medical monitoring for blood lead. And then there was a whole suite of actions we took as a country in the 1970s and 1980s from taking lead out of gasoline and paint. And, you know, between the blood testing and the regulatory actions, 
that we undertook with broad public support, we were able to bring blood lead levels way Absolutely. down over the over the subsequent decades. And That's now medical example. monitoring, you know, for blood testing is a normal part of what we do uh, as part of, you know, just a regular medical checkup for kids. Absolutely. That's a great analogy, the, the blood testing for lead. Thank you so much for that. Thank you, Dr. Bartell. Thank you, Andrew, for joining us today. Thank you for all of our listeners who joined in as well. We will be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.